Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold. Say yes to adventure. Say yes to living it. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It. This is where we talk to experts in the experience of being human. The guy that we're going to talk to today, Bobby McMullen. Bobby and I ski race together on the U.S. Adaptive Team. I have to tell you, before we do his introduction, when we had to go to the training center, National Training Center, and we had to fill out the forms and it said, list broken bones and surgeries, it was a hassle to be behind Bobby because he took absolutely forever. This thing was like Bible size by the time. Two kidney and pancreas transplants, two pacemakers, open heart surgery, two bouts of cancer, three years of dialysis, broken most of his bones. He also later in life went through two miscarriages with his partner. He's blind. He's a downhill mountain biker. On his website, it says extreme athlete, mountain bike racer, Paralympian, husband, father, and friend. We are going to get into all of that as we move through this interview. Bobby, I watched your movie. This was 2008, right? The way Bobby sees it. If anybody wants to see, wants to go on a trip down the mountain with Bobby, go to YouTube, Google the way Bobby sees it. And one of the things that they did so well, this is your, this is approaching your race in Downeyville, one of the, the, the foremost downhill mountain bike race in the U.S., 5,000 feet of, of elevation loss, 800 feet of gain, 15 miles. And one of the things that they did that's so effective because you don't, you don't see that well, right? I mean, I remember you telling me at one point early on, that they diagnosed it at 2,200, your vision. 2,200, for those of you, so 20 is, is the distance that you have between you and the eye chart when you take an eye exam. 1,200 is 134, 100, 140 feet short of a quarter of a mile. So what's that saying? At that point, you were diagnosed that what I saw at 20 feet, you were seeing at a quarter of a mile. I checked this out on my, on my ride the other day because I know from the stoplight to the final turn is a quarter of a mile. And there's no way that I'm picking up any one inch high, one inch high letters. But you said that's not really accurate because you don't even see the chart. So you're not even you're not even on the chart. It's not 201200. It's 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 just kind of like whatever. It's just you just don't see. What they did well in the movie was they they gave a sense of of that of that cloudy that blurry vision and we felt like we were on with you. I told you before I am not a fan of the POV camera. I want I want POV in small small doses. But with you, it was this sense of impending doom. 
I, I have to apologize for this analogy, but but it really was it was the Mr. Magoo analogy, right? Mr. Magoo back in the day where we watched Mr. Magoo, and he had no idea of what was going on, and things always worked out for Mr. Magoo, right? Everything he ended up, you know, he's driving his car and he drives off the highway and he drives onto the onto the beam that's getting raised onto the onto the skyscraper and everything worked out for Mr. Magoo. For you, it's exactly the opposite. People talk about coming back bloody from a mountain bike ride, and that's a nature of a mountain bike ride. For you, that's 10, 20, 30 times greater. So when you don't see what's going on. My question to you, what are you thinking? Like, what are you thinking deciding, I want, I don't see anything, I want to be a downhill mountain biker? What are you thinking? Why? why? <laughs> well, I, I think you put it pretty well. You know, I, I find it interesting when you use the term blind. And um, people immediately think uh, in their heads, and I'll stereotype everybody on this, it's a guy with a cane, sunglasses, and a cup. And uh, the reality is when people think blind, they think totals. And that's about 10% of the population of blind people. The rest, the other 90% have varying degrees of sight. And I will, you know, I'll own it. People say, well, you're not totally blind. And I'll say, well, no, but I, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not. I just don't see very well. Um, and then they're like, well, you can ride a bike, do all those things. And my simple answer is, give me the keys to your car. I'll go park it for you. We'll figure that out. Um, you know, we, we, we've had so many fantastic discussions about motivations and why and what we do things, but why does anybody do put, pick something and do it? Um, being active is always prior to being blind, prior to health issues, uh, obstacles, whatever we want to call them. You know, I've always had the mindset that I'm going to lead an active life. And at 29, when I lost my sight, I, I took a beating emotionally. Um, life changed and it changed immediately. And I basically that moment was, I was told by a doctor in a phone call and I drove home and I had called dad and said, Hey, you want me to be out in the front yard? I need to talk to you. So he met me out there. I drove my truck up. Hold on, back it up. So what did the doctor say? What was the diagnosis? Uh, it's uh, a condition. I was diagnosed with a condition called, um, proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Okay. And so what happened? What does that mean? Because I don't understand many it's, of those words. Um, type 1 diabetics uh, often have um, circulatory uh, concerns in their hands, feet, and their eyes, their kidneys, where that certain parts of the body aren't getting enough blood. And for those that don't know, it's, it is actually the leading cause of amputation, the leading cause of blindness, the leading cause of kidney failure and the leading cause of uh, sterility. Um, that's type one and type two offers up some of the same um, awful side effects. And you were diagnosed with type one at 12 years old, right? And had to monitor insulin, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It took, it took uh, at that time I was, wow, taking, you know, four shots a day using a, a glucometer to test my blood sugar like most diabetics do. The technology is much more advanced these days. The insulins are better. The delivery systems are better. 
Hold on a second on that because my, my wife just had to do a uh, had to do a you know some sort of a blood test. She had to give the screen and she had to you know she had to poke her finger. Yeah. And, and yeah. I said back in the day, and I don't think it's the, the same now, but back in the day, you had to do that all the time, right? You were poking your finger, get a drop of blood to test the drop of blood, right? Yeah, four times a day. And then giving yourself shots in the stomach. Stomach, uh, you typically rotate. You've got a couple zones in your body that tolerate injections better than others. It's usually outside of the thigh, about a hand size, stomach to stomach. It I would be leg to leg, stomach to stomach, back to back, and then arm to arm. Okay. You know, so you would use the back of the arm. It's anywhere you can pinch some flesh. Uh, uh, and again, it's not an intramuscular shot. It's, it's through the grab enough flesh to get between the layer of muscle and the layer of, of skin. Okay. So that's kind of, but yeah. And, and you were an mean, active kid. I mean, you played four sports as a freshman, yeah, right? And, yeah, and three sports the rest of the time. I mean, people, their first assumption, which is, I think, incredibly, um, it, it's, people don't know. They, they automatically think that you didn't take care of yourself. And I wasn't perfect. None of us are. I made mistakes with my care. I varied off the diet, you know, I mean, but I was, I, it, and I, I never was in the hospital because of my diabetes. It was because of broken bones and doing other things. And I was checked at those times, you know, whether it was concussions, ribs, legs, whatever. I mean, so my level of care uh, was, was good, but it wasn't perfect. Um, you know, and you can attribute why that happened to a lot of different things. Diabetes sucks in any form. Type one is fucking brutal. And ask any person that has it, ask any person that is married to a father, mother of, it is a brutal disease and you can manage it. It is manageable, especially with a lot of the great tools, the better insulins. But ultimately, you know, um, in some cases, as in mine, uh, my dad would have knock the crap out of me if I didn't behave in terms of <laughs> Robert James, you know, did you test, you know, he held me accountable. My parents held me accountable. So did my sisters, the school I went well, to. Well, then you said six sisters too, right? Uh, I mean, you, you didn't get away with anything, did you? <laughs> I got away with everything. Where were you in the pecking order? Four older, two younger. <laughs> and surrounded. Um, they had you surrounded. They did. Um, and, uh, you know, you got a variety of personalities, interests, and as they grew older, different lives and different approaches to life, different parents, different examples of growing up, you know, with, with, with that many parents. But we had, I mean, that many kids. Well, my parents were dynamite. I mean, how they manage. I mean, I've got one kid, and I still get up every night to make sure she's breathing. And I don't know how my parents managed it with six kids. And at 12, when I was diagnosed, even, you know, also knowing that as an only boy, I certainly received a lot of attention and very positive attention. And when I became a diabetic, you know, uh, you know, this is with great reflection and at 58 years of age, looking back and being an observer of, the, of, of what happens with people, working with people through certain through issues in life, you know, looking back and understanding that I received even more attention because I was a diabetic. And I mean, my parents gave me shots, you know, back to back. My dad made my breakfast almost every morning, you know, to make sure I got the right 
you know, uh, the right type of nutrition, which plays a, an important part in a diabetic's life. Going, you know, and, and with Six Sisters, uh, I mean, I, I, I had, a, had a great relationship with my parents and all the support, but so do my sisters in terms of the support they gave me. Their experiences with my parents may vary, may be very different in their perspective. But, um, you know, I was gifted from the beginning and largely who I am is because of my parents and the support that I have. And I say that as a caveat to why I am who I am. And so I had a, they, anymore, say a kid's diagnosed with type one on a Friday. Their doctor, usually a GP, will just, either a nurse will introduce them or a doctor will say, okay, this is what's going on. We checked your, you know, your A1C, we checked your blood glucose levels, they're all elevated. You're gonna start taking insulin. Here's your script, go to the, go to the uh, pharmacy, the pharmacy will show you how, but here's, here's a five minute intro. And I'm saying this fairly tongue in cheek, but you'll understand when I tell you my particular process. So they give them to on a Friday night, they go home with a box of syringes and insulin, and directions on how to eat. Okay. I spent two weeks in the hospital with a nurse who was a specialist in what at the time was called juvenile onset type one. Two weeks in the hospital about with diet, with exercise, giving shots into oranges. I had, you know, I, you know, my, um, I, before I gave a shot to myself, I was shooting up oranges. Then I had to shoot up my nurse. Then I had to give my parents a shot Ooh. and then I had to give both of them before they ever turned. And me, I mean, I never had an affinity to needles or gross stuff. I mean, I, as long as I can remember shooting a shot, you know, I was a rough and tumble kid, I guess. And that's not stereotyping being a tough guy now or whatever. It's just, I, I was, a, I was an only boy with a house of six. My sisters would lock me out and I'd go outside. But that experience. Yeah, you were a football player. You were a, you know, you were the quarterback on the football team. You were, yeah, this is what you did. This is what I, you know, that's what I did. And so, you know, the, the process is so much different now. The educational process is so much lacking. You know, there used to be tons of diabetic care centers for education and support. And those are not, you know, those, those came and went lack of funding uh, in many ways. In hospitals, the same thing. You know, you're going to go in, you're going to have a nurse that helps you out. But back to what we were talking about, the care, how I ended up with sight loss. It's not an excuse. I own my you life. managed it, though. I mean, you, I, you'd come through, you felt like you, were, you knew what you were doing, right? I, I was never in the hospital for uh, high glucose levels or, or having, you know, insulin shock where I, I passed out. I always managed, always carried a snack you know, took my shots, took my tests, and it still, well, fucks you up. It can, it can. People also, there are great examples out there that you can find of people who have successfully managed their diabetes into their entire life. And there is definitely a double-edged sword to the, these stories because what we often and too often hear is a tragedy. And first thing I want to tell your audience, our audience is my life is not a tragedy. My life is not a, oh my God, that poor guy. There's nothing poor guy about me. And every experience I have in my life is just part of who I am. But going to what you're saying about when the sight loss, what, what the circumstance was, it was a, um, a condition of the eyes as a result of type 1 diabetes where my eyes were not getting enough blood. 
and the body will send a signal, a chemical to your eyes, which will induce it to start growing blood vessels to the back of the redness, retinas to give it more blood. And this is again, my terminology, my layman's explanation. So the eyes start getting this basically pyrocantha type of growth to get it, get it blood. And then the, 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 the body will shut it, shut it off miraculously when, when it's, when its job is done. But in my condition with, with my particular condition, it never shut off. And so what happens is you get this overgrowth of these blood vessels, these tiny blood vessels in the back of your eye, and they started fracturing. And so when people talk about tracers, those little drops, those are typically blood vessels that happen to most people for stress or exertion or a lot of different reasons. Other, other eye conditions can cause it. Like when you but get the floaters. Floaters, the floaters, that's what they are. Yeah. And okay. I, you know, and in the movie, you know, I talk about it that all of a sudden I was getting floaters all the time. And it's funny, you know, I'd watch them like right in the bottom of my eye and it just started filling up like a lava lamp. I could shake my head and those things would go around. So um, again, the, the eyes start growing like blood vessels, like crazy. They fracture and, uh, end up basically draining into the eye, into the vitreous. That's the fluid inside your eye. And with enough of those blood vessels attached to the retinas that will often tear the retinas back. And so my, in my, what was going on with me, I was having a, a proliferative is there's diabetic retinopathy and there's proliferative diabetic retinopathy. Prolific is just what the word means, non-stop, unstoppable. And it typically happens with older diabetics. So me at 29 and in law school, it was, it was not unheard of, but rare. And I got to really thank the guy. Uh, it was an op I went and saw an optometrist first. And, oh, I wish I could remember his name because he deserves, deserves so much credit for straightening me out and saying, you know, he could have gone a lot of different directions with the information he gave me. Um, and he didn't. He just, in the middle of the exam, you know, to get some glasses because I was having this problem seeing. I was in law school, you know, driving and seeing. I'm seeing all this crazy shit. And I figured, go get some glasses. And uh, he stopped right away. He says, Bobby, I can't help you. You have a condition called this and you need to see an ophthalmologist. And here's the guy to go see. And so they steered me to some guys in town that started getting after it with uh, laser treatments. That's how they train, they, that's how they stop the bleeding of these micro blood vessels. And did this guy, the first guy, the, the, uh, the, the optometrist, did he tell you that you were, you were facing, that you were going to become blind? Or, or did he not tell you that? He told me it was very, uh, uh, this was a big concern and that he didn't want, he says, I, and um, God, I wish I, I, I rarely forget this guy's name because I, again, it was, he did a great job at that moment. And I, you know, a lot of people have been in these moments of holy what? And um, he did a great job, connected me. And the way he presented it was, this is beyond my skill set. And I wish I could help you, but I can't. But this is what I can do for you. This is what it's called. It's, you know, and, and basically gave me some real brief two or three sentences of related to, you know, my type one diabetes. 
go see these guys. And the next day I was in the chair at an ophthalmologist. And right. um, don't waste any time. Yeah. Get there, get it done. Yeah. And and then they th that's where I, you know, it was it was kind of I don't like to use the term gray, but it became a very um it, it catches your attention because you know they looked in there and they started doing they started doing laser treatments and you usually get one one laser treatment on a you know handful of blood vessels when you see these bleeders with 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 retinopathy and its normal shape and form or with prolific retinopathy you can beat back by lasering these blood vessels to keep them from bleeding, then you reevaluate your 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 management of your diabetes to help uh, get back to some normal level. So, um, and what happens with diabetics uh, that damages it damages the nerve endings because the fingers, eyes, organs, feet is because those are the extreme points of the body, your extremities. They have, you know, that's why they get cold easier one way or they're not your organs, of course, or your eyes, but uh, they're very fragile um, in many cases. And um, so anyhow, um, the uh, they they per, they were doing like 800 an eye like they did this for about a week where they were doing 800 little zips in my eye to stop the bleeders because my eyes were filling up with blood and they couldn't see in there to see what the damage was because there was so much blood, but they weren't anticipating having to do that many lasers. You know, it was, it was so many that they would basically go to the next day they do the other eye and then they give you a rest day and then they go back and try to, to stop others and they could not keep up. And that's when, you know, Dr. You know, Lannon uh, was a gentleman's name says, Bobby, you're going to be a total in a month, total in a month. So what do you think at that point? He, he says, you're going to be a total in a month. Your whole life is active. You're, you're, you're reading, you're in law school. Like, is that a death sentence? What's, the, what, what's your thought? Well, you know, after talking to the original ophthalmologist, he, you know, in his great, he says, you know, he did say, you're going blind and you need to get to these guys to help you out. And so that's that point where I drove home and dad met me outside and I put both hands on my knees and I cried and uh, reached up, gave him a hug and just said, dad, I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going blind. And he cried a little bit. I stepped back, hands on the knees, took some breaths and put my arm around him. He goes, okay, let's go tell your mom. And we went in and this is kind of my, M.O., you know, it was sitting at dinner and, you know, just pretty quiet, you know, tried to give them the understanding I had at the time of what was going to go on. And it's tough, very somber moment. Uh, but my parents, incredibly brave, as you know, having to deal with life changing moments that they look at their child and go, what now? And I just remember the table. We had chicken rice and asparagus and that was i would have dinner with mom and dad and that was our go-to other than that it would be pizza and you know i remember uh mom and dad always drink uh champagne at dinners at that point in their life they would toast champagne and say you know um 
toast each other. And so I cracked a beer because dad had always had a couple of beers and we sat and, you know, and uh, it's pretty quiet and not a lot of tears at that point because I have, my mechanism for working through things may not be healthy according to professionals, but it sure works for me. Because I get pissed, you know, I'm, I'm driven by angst. I'm driven by, you know, um, anger. And I, I never, I wasn't, I wasn't an angry kid or a tough guy. I wasn't getting, I mean, we get a handful of fights growing up. I mean, people do that, but I didn't really realize how angry I could be and how pissed off I could be, not at somebody, but the situation. And I was able to take the background as an outdoorsy fit guy that loved to do these love to ski, love to stay fit, love to ride bikes, love to, love to spend time with friends, golf, whatever it was. These are things that I've done and had planned to do my whole life. I was going to be a lawyer, probably a really shitty one. And to this day, I say, if things had gone another way in my life, I'd be divorced twice with probably four or five kids by these two gals, paying alimony working every minute I could and trying to hump your leg to buy a bike, to get a deal on a bike or skis. I'd be that guy. Do you ever have those sliding door moments though of like what, what would have happened? I mean, you're just saying that, right? And, and that's certainly a worst case scenario. Yeah. If I hadn't had to do this, what would I do? Do you ever have those moments or not? I don't, I don't have many because it's, you know, it's one of those things that it's, it's moot. It's a moot point that, everybody can reflect on their lives, but for A, B, or C would not have, you know, have happened, but for me losing my sight. And I get that riding my bike. You probably get that skiing. You know, I'm sure every person in this life that's had to face a major change and pursues, God, Bobby, you ride so well, man. You would, you would, you would have been like awesome as if you could see, I'm like, probably not, <laughs> you know, Man, you're you're such a good skier. I mean, wow, what what were you like when you could ski? I was not as good a skier. <laughs> um, but you, it's very. I am sort of black and white about that. It's like it's not a discussion I have. No, because things have you've you've just done things that you're better now than you were before. Is there anything? Is there a message that if you could go back and talk to like the 18 year old Bobby? Is there a message that you would give that kid of like, hey, this is what's going on? Wow. Hindsight in the life of a person with my health history based on the complications from diabetes, the obvious answer would be yes. But was I mature enough or smart enough? I was self-driven, self-motivated to do one thing, put a smile on my face at 18. Uh, you know, I was at the I was at the JUCO playing ball, but turning into a snow skier, staying at my parents' house. I loved it, right? I was gonna go to the JC for a couple of years, probably go down to Chico, turn into a ski bum, you know. Um, but at 18, I I mean I I was very lucky in high school. I was good enough to start in sports. I was a reasonable enough student to get good marks, and. I had a great relationship with my parents to where they say, you go to school, you can be under a roof. You decide you're going to work full time, you're going to pay rent. But that I had that relationship that 
you know, hey, coming and going with sickness and being busted up a bunch, my parents always had an open door for me. That's the relationship I had. And it was at 18. I would have never, no, I, 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 looking back, was there a message? Well, sure. Look harder at taking, managing your diabetes, be more educated at the time. You know, and what was available then? That's, that's volumes of discussion. You know, one shot, only two types of insulin when I was diagnosed. How did that impact me doing one shot, one, you know, two types of insulin since 1977 for the first five or six years? Did that have an impact? I'm not second guessing anything and I'm not going to make an excuse. Is that a message that most people would want to give to, to their younger self? You know, I mean, the idea of like, or that we should, the idea of, be more in control of your health. Take charge of your health. Yours is an extreme sense, but take charge of your health. I mean, you were fit, you were active, but 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 you know, be informed. Know what you're supposed to do. Is that is that something that most people would need to tell their their younger self? I, I think so, but who we were when we were 18, you know, I mean, what would I have done different in a thousand different ways? I probably would have pursued a couple of scholarships that I decided to go to the JUCO for, you know, had a couple of, you know, like academic and athletic offers, one at Berkeley, one at UOP. Um, and I decided to stay home. I mean, those kinds of decisions, but as far as our health as younger kids, oh, fuck, Chris, think about it. We grew up, we still live with a sense of in in invincibility. Invincibility. We kids growing up, the shit that I did and walked away going, ha, that was close. And that people ask, are you scared of what you do? Yeah. But I like that because that lets me know I'm alive. And I liked it at 18. And I love it still now. That moment of, Haha. all right. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's not, it's not chemically induced. It's not alcohol induced. It's a moment in life that I really enjoy that feeling. People say, oh, you're an adrenaline junkie. But what would I say in terms of health? It, kids are invincible. Look at them smoke, smoke pot, drive, drive like shit. Jumping out, you know, jumping out of cars at 60 miles an hour and getting up and dusting it off. There's a magic. I know more than my parents. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, this is a, cause you talk about, you talk about scaring yourself and you have done, you've done effectively the biggest downhill mountain bike races in the world, right? I mean, Downeyville, you've done the, the mega avalanche. Yeah. Uh, Alpe d'Huez, which is what is, is 85, 30, 800, 8,530 feet of, of elevation drop over 12 miles. And I watched some of these. These are these are narrow little trails. This is not some <laughs> some big fire road highway that you're going down these. This is this is some absolutely crazy stuff. You're talking about scaring yourself, which which to me is is as I think a huge part of of who you are. But in the movie, you said, because I'm watching this, I'm going, okay, how is he doing it? How is he doing? Because one, I mean, you talked about early on when you got onto a mountain bike, that balance was hard. This is also, you said, you said, use soft hands. 
How, how do you do this? You said soft hands. You said, my dad taught me about soft hands. You know, as, as a football quarterback, soft hands, you, know, you always want to be, and, and, and I'm like, okay, okay. There is a component of soft hands, but there's something more to this. This trail serpentines down this mountain. It's covered in rocks. It's often what a foot and a half wide. I mean, this is, it's like as wide as the handlebars on your bike in a lot of places. It's falling away to this side. It's falling away to that side. And, and soft hands aren't going to do it. I mean, what I thought about when I looked at this and I said, okay, this is sort of similar to, to being a skier, where the idea of being a skier is that you project your upper body down the hill that you keep your upper body going down the hill. And what happens when anyone is scared is that, that you back off, right? You go from, from having the pressure on the front of the boot to sitting back, to leaning in. And if you do that, it becomes cataclysmic very, very quickly. I mean, I watched you break ribs in this movie. I watched, you know, take it, take it right in the chest. I mean, you... I'm not, I'm not sure how you, how, how much abuse, I think you can take more abuse than pretty much anybody that I've seen, but, but it's something more. It's, it's the question is how do you have that commitment to going down the hill to being going down the hill? Because if you, if you lose that commitment at all, your bike is going to slide right out from underneath you. How do you have the commitment that lets you Let's you let's you say this is what I'm going to do when I really have no idea what is in front of me. You've got to you've got to have a pretty wide range, right? So so how do you have that commitment? I think it goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago that you know, when did I how did I how did I process everything and how do I experience such big changes? And I was, like I said, very active at 29 and I wanted to keep doing that. And that moment of sitting down with my parents and drinking a beer at a quiet table, I knew then what I was going to do. It's always looking forward for, to me. And what I knew I needed to do was like, all right, if I'm going to lose my sight, I'm not going to stop one being me. And I am not. And the second thing was, I'm not going to stop any of the activities, any of the things, that, the, the way of life. I chose a way of life and at 29 I knew who I wanted to be and what I what I wanted to do that did change the what part but in terms of me it was I'm just gonna have to figure out how to do these things but it will be different and at 29 I made a commitment to ride my mountain bike to ski and at the beginning of both of those to stay outside to play golf you know whatever it was it didn't happen that feel that sensation that you got to see you know, I mean, this sounds so stereotypical and rhetorical, but it took hours and days of walking and practicing and touching and feeling um, to learn a whole different way to do these sports. And, you know, people ask, well, gosh, you'd be a monster if you could see. See, no, I, I'm a better mountain biker now. Why? Why are you a better mountain biker? I've. I think it has a lot to do with the opportunities to do it a ton. Life changed a lot. The, the skiing, same thing. I got to spend quality time 
day after day with the best people in the world who were the best skiers in the world, coached by some of the best coaches I've ever been under. And that combined with, I love to train. To this day, we talked about that. Guys like us, you know, what is our end game? Well, I still like to go do some hard efforts, right? That is something I enjoy to do. And it's the repetitiveness, what your body feels and touches. On the mountain bike, I ride some of the, and honestly, I ride some of the best equipment in the world. I do. You know, I'll plug it. Santa Cruz bike, Suntour suspension, WTD tires, you know, census grips, all these things. I had the opportunity to work with these great people who produce great products that suited my ability. Remember, I'm only going about 60% of what most people consider an average speed. You know, on a fire road, I can unleash the dogs and go straight line as fast as anybody. But things like you saw, you know, I'm going about, like I said, 60% at my fastest. So the rates aren't there, but I have done a ton of work. I love, I love to train to this day. And when you talk about balance, I relate it to skiing, a balanced position in skiing, a balanced playing basketball. Where's your center? You talk about your upper body. Well, your upper body, Lindsay Richter put it very well in, in a podcast I did with her. She goes, your boobs have eyes, you know, your hips have eyes. That's where you'll go, you know? And these are things that I pick up. I'm, I am a, I'm an addict to learn, to do better of what I do. Golf, you know, I, I missed a lot of golf balls before I hit my first one, but it was a matter of grooving and, uh, you know, the commitment to it. But I had support to put me in these positions. Um, I had um, the drive to do it and I had the time to invest in it. I didn't, I got married at 50. All I did from 29 to 50 was try to make a living, which came to pass through putting some skis on, making it, you know, or riding a bike, talking and working with people. You know, even this exercise, this is not an exercise, this is a conversation between two longtime friends. And yet, when I think of this, I want to give you my best. And I always have that. I want to give myself my best. Is that my best is not determined by where I finish. Because mine, riding a bike, that's, that's, a, that's a solo event, right? That's a singular event like skiing. But with skiing, uh, as a visually impaired athlete and riding, it's a team sport. I can't do it without you at that level. And so the gratification comes for me is that if I gave 110% and I rode well, then the result of all my hard work is, is just that sensation. You know, I don't get, you know, I've never been paid to win a race because I finished dead fucking last in so many. But how do you, how do you have the commitment to because it's almost I mean the commitment is is even just to being on top of your bike right I mean it's it's the difference between being on top of your bike and feeling like you're you're putting your foot down all the time because you don't want to crash how do you have that commitment with this unknown where you're on this narrow trail and sometimes it's 50 60 feet off of this trail if you go wrong and so you know that that's on the right hand side how are you not hugging 
the left-hand side going, okay, I just need to hold on to this so I don't end up there. How are you committed because your commitment is the thing that allows you to perform? And, but it's a huge barrier. It's a hurdle that everybody has to, has to jump in order to be able to, to actually be moving and actually do what you're doing. How do you do it? It takes reps and you start in parking lots riding in circles. When I first started skiing, I figured I was going to rip down that hill, right? Hell, I fell into the hill for an hour and a half. A 10-minute run turned into an hour and 45 minutes of literally tipping into the hill. My first bike ride was lower the seat, quad pod in that thing, feet on the ground, because I kept wanting to tip over. And it started literally in a, you know, in a park, in a driveway. And then People the driveway- People realize how much your vision is connected to your balance. If you close your eyes and try to balance, you're going to be over in a heartbeat. Even if it's something that's super easy, and even if you're already riding your bike and, and you're moving and you close your eyes and you okay, and then it's like you have to catch yourself. And so this is what you're starting on. Well, one eye, you know, if you lose one eye, you're gonna lose, you lose depth perception and also balance. You, your, your body will adjust with time. And as you know, just the physiological changes you experience and anybody else that, you know, people will say, oh, God, you have these superhuman senses. Well, no, my, my hearing didn't get better. My sense of touch didn't get better. My smell, my sense of smell didn't. My you know, none of these things got better. You are born with a certain level. You are born with, you know, if you've got great vision, you're born with it. You can't get it better. You don't, I don't all of a sudden, oh, yeah, I've got superhuman smelling. It's that you use them more. And as I progressed riding a bike or skiing, that all right, I made it down in the wedge all the way to the bottom on a run that took me, you know, 10 minutes. Oh, I've improved. I did that in an hour and 40 versus an hour and 45. It's um, stubbornness, but also the thing too is that, you know, I always say to people, it's, um, you know, it's much like one, you know, um, one revolution. It's not, it's not what happens to you, it's what you do with it. And it's how you react and how you respond. And what are my what are my physical gifts? I'm not inherently a great athlete, but I do like to train and practice. My greatest strength is I'm stubborn and then I'm willing to get back up every time. And hours of riding by myself in my parents' driveway, dropping off a curve, pulling up on a curve, waiting to feel the curve. And you develop techniques, the local trails memorization but also on a unlike snow you can go down the, that same trail five minutes later and someone kicks a rock out that could spin you off the front and it's the the realization of that but not the focus of that you know what my focus is getting sunburned teeth i love movement i love arcing i love that a little bump here and there big bumps here and there you know how do i do a jump you know these are things where technique communication with my guide, walking things, repetition in my technique, but also you hear this a lot, man. I couldn't, I, I, you know, I, if that happened to me, I wouldn't do it. You know, I, I wrecked my knee skiing. I'll never ski again. Well, hell, if I said that, I'd never been skiing with you. You know, oh, if I fell that hard on a mountain bike, I'd never ride again. I think falling down seven times and getting up eight, a message that I learned from John McCarg, my junior year English teacher, had a plaque on his wall that his team used to be the football coach. And I wrote that down 
my first day in this class. You fall down seven times, you get up eight. And I never knew how profound that would be because I can go on a bike, on a, on a ride, and I will find the one thing that can knock you off a bike and it'll knock my ass on the ground. Yeah, yeah you, you, you're like a magnet. You're going to find that thing. No matter where it is, you're going to find it. Do you have like a checklist when you get on your bike of like, hey, Bobby, remember this, like, like be, you know, pointing down the hill. Whatever it is, do you do you have a checklist that, that kind of gets you centered, gets you ready, gets you prepared? It's the feel I've it's the feel feel I've developed of what I like in a bike and what's successful. How do I feel? Do I sit in the middle of the bike? Are my tires right? I go through a checklist with my gear. You know, uh, I, I and if I feel something off, I'm I'm a, I'm a confront I'm a fanatic about seat height and far position. And always, so that's where my first checklist is. If my gear is good, I have tons of confidence in what I ride. Balance, if I'm going into uh, maybe a rhythm section or a section that might have small jumps um, or a rocky section like what you saw in Downeyville. Downeyville is just right a creek bank for fucking hour and a half to two hours, man. You know, you know, Downeyville is harsh. They call it a downhill, but it's a downhill cross country race. You're pedaling and you're getting beat. It's constantly remind myself of position, the fundamentals. Get my hips behind the seat. Keep my arms bent. Push the bike out in front of you. These are mental checklists I do every time that I ride. But it starts with making sure, you know, my health is good. It goes with making sure my equipment is set up because that equipment allows me to do a lot of things. But I push that equipment to the nth degree when, you know, you take, you know, that slap that some people say my day's done. You know, you saw in the movie a couple of, oh, you know, when I was rolling around the dirt, like, oh, I kind of went left. I should have gone right. And, ah, you know, it doesn't feel like it's bleeding. <laughs> well, it's not, I'll, I'll be all right. I'll be all right. Yeah. Just give me a second. Just give me a second. You know, and so you're taking these huge hits there has to be there has to be some fear at that point you know of like knowing that something's coming something that you're not seeing that you're you know you're you, there, there's somebody swinging a baseball bat effectively I mean not not literally but figuratively there's somebody swinging a baseball bat at you as you're going through and like you're you're running the gauntlet as you're doing these how how exhausting is it are you just gripped the whole time can you can you relax as you're going is it just mentally and physically and emotionally just super exhausting by the time you're done what do you what do you feel like it's a very that's a really good way to put it because that's a component of what i do that um it goes to the reps right a lot of what i do it's at a different level it's like anybody ever see a blind dog they never miss a beat. You would never tell. You follow the pack. He'll jump into a window. But things become, that's, that's how, you know, there's an adaptation that, that, that occurs. Now, the emotional investment, yeah. You know, a whole lot of, like ski racing, I was always, people would always say, Bobby, take a breath, take a breath. And I'd, I swear to God, I'd hold my breath the entire run. You know, and that's, that's not, that, that, that leads to the tenseness. That's, that's about, you know, when you talk about the hands, it starts in my hands. And when I talk about soft hands, it's soft but firm. And it was an analogy I meant about raising a child. 
I don't think my dad was really talking about how to throw a football or a baseball when he talked about soft hands. Soft but firm. That it's if you overgrip and over tighten because of you know it that is a practice. That is something you have to remind yourself. Overgripping your bars tenses everything. And, you, and then you're going to hit and you're going to go over. You're, yes. you're more likely to crash. You know, I think of when I ride, one of the things I remind myself is flow like water, Bobby. You feel resistance, use your arms. You know, yeah, I run huge suspension bikes, front and rear, but you have got 18 inches of suspension in your arms and legs. That took me forever to make that as, you know, practice, practice. But, you know, it is incredible, that relationship between a guide and myself you know, for a four or five minute true downhill, it's intense because you are, you're going as, I, I like going as fast as I can. I love going fast. It's a, for, at my level, that 60%. I love getting a little credit card air. You know, a little jump is a long, hey, jumping off a curb is pretty cool to me. I <laughs> love credit that. Card. Meaning you're seeing a little daylight in between your Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> like, you get, Bobby, you got some air, we can put the credit card underneath it. And I mean, that's, that's that's very real to me all these little sensations um but it is being you it's going out in public you know using these other senses just walking around i am very aware and with my daughter and not seeing real well she's on a short visual leash so to speak she is six feet and and i am paying attention to anything and everybody i can hear cars start up it's not that i have superhero here superhero hearing it's just that that's my focus. My daughter, strangers come up, people I don't know. I am, I am the worst person. You want to, oh, look at this little girl, put hands on her. You know, like, like people would, you know, um, want to, when she was a baby, I was aghast at how many people would want to come up and want to put their hands on my kid, you know, and, and, and I've got them by the throat. And I'm like, who the fuck are you? Get away from my kid. And I still have that guardian in me but forgive me for the tangent it's just that the awareness on a bike like that um and focus from my guide and myself absolutely depends and in the movie you good example of that moment of 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 controversy that 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 element that came up between jj and i that was a total distraction and i meant that i was not comfortable not that he would intend to do me harm, but if you're not on the page or you don't believe, if you don't believe in me when we're riding that stuff, you're gonna have a miserable time. And you could very well, because you're always looking, excuse me, at me, where are you at? You know, if I'm not communicating to you, that puts you at harms. I have to be on point. And I, I, all these things about emotionally, how do you feel? It's not a sense of relief. It's if I have a successful run, I want to go do it again. And that's always been, why do I take a beating? Because I love riding my bike. I'm lucky to have these kind of passions. They happen to be active ones. But I think people's, one of the things I, I think is a true tragedy is people don't do something out of fear. And I hear that a lot from visually impaired people that I wouldn't, I could ride a tandem, but man, I wouldn't want to try. I'm like, ah, come on, let's pad up and go on some grass. Oh, no, 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 no. I might fall. I'm like, no, you're going to fall. <laughs> There's no might about it. Let's just learn how to do it together. And we'll tumble around and we'll find a place where you can succeed. And, and, and there are other visually impaired riders uh, that are doing tremendous things. There's some, a group that does echolocation. 
and uh, that ride with guides and they ride their own bike. The echolocation, it's a technique that, that's uh, been found to be successful for some visually impaired people to literally emit a sound in this form of a click. I think they use their mouths. That's what I've observed in terms of how does that work. And the sound is like sonar, bounces off things. And I don't know, you talk about something I can't understand, how that works out in the wild because you don't have anything to bounce sound off. It may be some trees or some rocks. And my whole thing is know your space. I'll zigzag quite a bit to find width on the trail. I'll have walked it. I'll have ridden it slow. Know where the big features are that are immovable. Um, know your limits. If today's a day to walk over that rock on this ledge, then I'm going to walk over it. But there are people that will go on their mountain bikes and um, they'll find the right environment that they've been successful in. And they'll use echolocation to, you know, ride their bikes alone, their kid. But you follow your guide a lot. Your guide is talking Absolutely. the whole way. So, yeah. so it's not echolocation, but you're following his no. or her voice as you're going down, which to me, looking at this, because I mean, you're talking about the tandem part. You're talking about that there are some some people, but there aren't. Is there anybody else who's doing what you're doing on the downhill mountain bike side? Um, not that I'm aware of, you know, there is, there's, there's, um, a lot of people, uh, you know, in dis disabled sports, the opportunities are growing almost daily with the types of sports, especially the fringe sports like skating, snowboard, you know, we've seen this great growth. Um, you know, there's a total kid that rides a skateboard in a skate park with his cane. It's, it's just fucking rad. That's awesome. Um, there it is. And, but, uh, in terms of the, you know, you have the, you have the Paralympic Games, both Winter Olympics, as well as the Summer Games. And there, though that venue is growing with different sports and opportunities, um, mountain biking, uh, there's, there's one other kid that uh, lives in Park City. Um, oh, cool. And uh, yeah, and uh, I'll give you his name. And uh, Dave uh, Barnhart is his name. Okay. And he, he started with the... Uh, uh, Michi's program there at the, the uh, National Ability Center, the right? Ability Center, and he lives in Park City, and they had moved out there to give this kid some opportunities. And they contacted me years ago, and I just kind of kept, you know, in touch. And he just graduated high school. Um, he sees, I think, his vision's a little bit better than mine, but still very limited. And you know, to the extent that he was racing on his own, and he was really struggling for obvious reasons and his kids are legit his parents are great and you know one of the things i kept working with him on the few times i got to talk with him is like you know ride with a guide find that person you will ride faster better and you will find yourself navigating these things use the sight you have and the skill set you have i use sight and sound and my own skill set to do what i do it's our but this kid he's was going to go off and to college and race for a smaller college and he, he uses a very similar technique um but it wasn't until he's he didn't want to show people how different he was he's a strong kid great kid great support nice i love him and his family and it was i think a lot of it was that well, I don't want people to know I'm visually impaired. You know, he, he, like I talked about, man, I worked really hard at be, 
being able to pretend I can see and live in a society that's sighted, a society that, that is built around vision. We wondered that at one point, Bobby. I think it was at a pro race. There was a pro ski race at Winter Park. It was the first year that they did it. And the Denver oh, yeah. Bronco cheerleaders came up and, uh, and, well, and you, had a, you had a brief relationship with, I think, the most attractive of the Denver Bronco <laughs> cheerleaders. And the rest of us are saying, I really don't. I think he can see. I don't. I think, I think he's been lying to us for years. But she sobered up. She sobered up. Yeah. Except, well, yeah maybe, maybe, maybe she couldn't see. Yeah. Maybe that was the problem. Okay. But it's so you're talking about the guide thing and, and with this kid that the guiding actually makes you better. But it's also a complete flip in the relationship, right? You're talking about your daughter that you are the guardian. Yeah. Yeah. That but relationship changes when you have when you have your guide right your guide is your guardian your guide is your eyes your guide has to make sure that you are on his or her wheel that that you are protected that they're giving you the right instructions as you're going down how exhausting is is the experience of the guide i mean you you'd have to tell me third hand obviously because you haven't guided but then also the creating that relationship and ensuring that you guys are on the same page. Well, the, the guide skier, the guide rider relationship is absolutely critical. And, you know, there are people that are great guides and there are some that may not be great, gu great guides. There's good and bad ones. Um, and, you know, you don't have to be a great racer or a great rider. You have to be a great communicator. And I have found that in most cases, women are outstanding guides across the board from the highest level to a sport or beginner rider because one, they're very empathetic, meaning there is no ego. They are there to help me and understand what I'm going through, but also they're great communicators. And they're very coachable. They are willing to learn and put their egos down. Sometimes men, not so much. And when you get going with certain people, you know, there's environments where I've been in where the person loses track of what they're doing. And they're, they keep saying to me, keep up, keep up through here. And it's not my job to keep up with them. I ask a lot. You're donating your time. You're donating a, a day or a moment you can be riding on your own and you're and you're also giving me you know um you're allowing me to experience my life and i don't care who's ever guided me for however long or less i'm eternally grateful for allowing me to live my life and being on two wheels good or bad getting smacked around whatever but they're there to allow me that no matter how difficult or simple the ride might be it is a gift and they're taking away from their life. Time is the most valuable thing we have because we never get it back. And people have donated hours of time to put me in the position to live the life that I choose. What a gift. Why do they do it? Many are curious, just curious like how I do it. A lot of people are like, yeah, I didn't really think you could, I actually could, I, I, I thought you, you could see better than you, you were letting on. And there, you know, after an experience of guiding, like, dude, you can't see shit. You know, it's kind of like, you know, being with people, you know, unless you're around me, you know, damn, you fake like you can see really good. 
But after spending a couple of days in their home, like, dude, you got to leave. You're knocking too much shit off the shelves kind of thing. And that's more, more tongue in cheek. But people, it goes to a lot, I think, when, when, when you had that, that moment in the parking lot. Do you let someone help you with the chair or not? Why? What are their motivations for doing it? Well, I think inherently people want to help. I do. And they want to, maybe they know someone, maybe there's something in their past that says, I'm going to lend a hand. Maybe they're just inherently good, like I hope all people are. In, in the movie, the guy said, the announcer, you know, was saying at one point, <laughs> do you know where I, I'm going with this? I think so. Go ahead. The announcer said, we've got our, we've got our special friend, Bobby. <laughs> Exactly. I cringe every time I hear that. Special. And the way he says it, he's a great guy, by the way. That Downeyville crowd that scene. And, is and he so means cool. nothing by that. No, he means he nothing, but we hear something, right? We hear something. Is that our special friend. Wink, <laughs> wink. <laughs> it is. But what's what's your role with what's your role there? What what's your role and what do you want them to see? Um, I, I didn't get into sport after I had a life-changing moment. I didn't quit sports after time and time again, picking my shit up from being near death, being sick, having transplants. I invest into my life and lifestyle. It is healthy for me. I have no regrets. And when I go out, it is not, don't be mistaken. It is not, I, I have great support from the industry, but take all the support away, I would still want to hair it out. I would still ride and invest in bikes. I love it. And the opportunity to have these organizations, I mean, I made a lot of calls to the Sea Otter. We had, to, we had to lobby to get me into the Mega Avalanche and send them tapes because people say, well, Bobby's blind and you have to explain what that means. And then they're, then they're like, well, you know, this is, a, this is a little more complicated than, you know, riding a fire road. This and is a like, real race. Uh, maybe that blind yeah. guy should go do something else. Yeah. Right. And, and, and it's not, I don't mistake me for the person who gives a fuck what you think about me and my ride by bikes, because I love it. I love to ride. I love to ride as much now as first time I ever threw a leg over a bike. I love the feeling of it. It is my expression. It is my art. It is my sense of, of individuality. It is my independence. It really is. And to experience that in the venues that I've had the opportunity, like Downeyville, I, I love getting to Downeyville. I spent a lot more time there uh, in previous years, but once, you know, once or twice a year, man, Downeyville, if you haven't been there, people that might listen to this, it's like, oh no, I remember being there. It's spectacular. It's raw. It will, you know, and you know, what's comical, people will say, oh yeah, we watched your movie, you know, yeah, you can, you know, but we're really concerned you can't do our downhill course. I'm like, did you watch Downeyville? I, it's, it's, I don't want to be cavalier as, uh, you know, I should probably take back that. I give no fucks what you think of me and my writing. It is, my motives are very simple. I love riding bikes. I love the feel. It is a great feel. There is nothing better than just feeling yourself flow up and over terrain for me. It is a sensation. It, it's, it's that I enter races like that because 
There's nothing that makes you do stupider things than putting a number plate on. Nothing that makes you go harder. Nothing that makes you bleed through your eyes or challenge yourself. Nothing that makes me ride something that I would otherwise probably walk down. There, that put a number plate on. And no runner that's ever run a race would say like, oh man, I, I, I'm ready to puke. You know, I don't know what's gonna happen. I'm gonna lose or I'm gonna, and they find themselves like, oh my God, I love that level. I love going to that next level. And I, and I, and I, and I love it. And that's when you're alive. Is that, I mean, that's what you've said, right? This is where you're most alive is when you're. I think most alive, I'm alive every morning. I'm, I've been gifted with an incredible, the gifts I have are, 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 are those that I've learned about later in life is that I don't, I don't, I don't get depressed. And I told you earlier, I get pissed off. Now, the psychologist could say, well, that's your mechanism. You're actually depressed. You could try to talk me into it. No, I wake up and I am a pathetic mess. Hi, honey. Blah, I'm a little sore today. I'm going to limping because my back's, but I'm going to kiss my kid. I'm going to make coffee. I'm ready to go. I, I love being alive. I don't know if there's a heaven. I don't. I don't know what happens. I think you're just going to kick dirt on me and cry a little bit and be done, but that's fine. But for me, if what if this is heaven? This is what if this is all we got? I'm not going to let fear or a change in my body to prevent me from doing what I love. I've always been active. The way I've been able to put a number plate on, it's not, I'm alive every day and I wish I could give this to people. The bike and skiing or jumping off a little cliff, playing golf, driving a golf cart. These allow me to be the person who I said I was going to be when this happened. I will not change who I am. I will not. And I'm good at me. That's the best thing I can do. I'm the best at being Bobby McMullen. And but being on a bike, those are things I loved before. Who would have thought I'd been able to do it full time at 58 and have a beautiful kid, have these conversations that might affect lives? This is being alive. Being able to ride is that icing on the cake. It is that it's that passion that I hope people have. Everybody has. Is that what people see? Because it's, it's also it's impressive. I mean, you mentioned your sponsors with Santa Cruz bikes, with WTB wheels, with uh, SR Sun Tour components, right? Your derailleur and stuff like that. Cali protection, uh, lazing with a variety of different products. You are sponsored. I mean, like you are, I mean, you're 58 years old. The <laughs> likelihood of someone 58 years old being sponsored, but you're sponsored by these great companies. Is that why they come to you? Why do they come to you? Because because of what you just said, do you think? Or, um, I I got a big boost up early after my second transplant in 2003. You know, I was dating a girl, uh, Teresa, uh Connor, uh, who was interested in racing bikes. And I impressed the hell out of her because I was on dialysis and she was actually my dialysis, a dialysis nurse that I worked with. And I invited her on a bike ride to guide me. <laughs> and um, she had this old bike that her brother gave her. She was so impressed I could change a tire. Yeah, she's like, I, I didn't think you could change a tire. You do what you got to do to impress. Yeah, and, and, then, you know, and then the relationship evolved. But 
you know, there was a point where she, you know, she wanted to race and I thought, all right, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go. And so the first race we went to, I, I'm not good on the sidelines at that time. It's like, I, I don't care if I finish DFL, I'm going to get one of my ski guides, which I did. And I'm going to show up the next race. And the next race, it was pouring down rain. It was shitty, but I finished DFL and had a blast. And then we talked about, well, let's go to the rest of the series. Let's go to this thing called sea otter and oh there's this place called downieville these magical places and i understood from my ski experience that hey none of these are cheap and maybe i could parley my ability to establish a relationship show what i've done on skis and what i want to try to accomplish so i threw out some resumes and made some phone calls and it's got a mark weir a bit and mark weir was his man i mean there's a legend in that hall of famer in his own right guy owned one downieville like eight times and I sent him a note and said, hey, I'm just trying to get a couple, you know, a couple seats some tires to offset expenses. It was a harmless, like, yeah, I'll see what I can get. And a couple of weeks later, I got everything in their lineup for both of us. And then he made introductions to um, Rob Roscoff, you know, and later on to many other quality people who found value in what I did. And it was that, you know, what is that value? Well, you're going to have to ask them. But sponsorship is a lot of things. And a lot of times it's traditionally focused on results, right? Winning podiums, whether you're a Paralympic athlete or an able-bodied athlete. Podiums garner attention. Products, the virtual NASCAR, Ricky Bobby. I want to thank, and I got to thank, but it's true. They help offset expenses by providing gear or maybe a financial component. But that process basically of, taking a chance and writing and happen, happen, happened to have a guy like Mark Weir answer me. He in turn introduced me to good people that were interested in my story. Very unique. I mean, if people were to look into me, they'd kind of go, yeah, that's pretty unique. What I do is different. I don't know that there's anybody that races downhill following a guide. There's a kid in Europe though, that's tossing, uh, you know, he's a, he's a VI, he's got albinism. And he's, you know, he's, he's tossing some cool jumps, you know, there's other people coming into play that I, I don't know where he got his motivation, but it's great to see. And in my instance, it was, I would, I, I'm unique to this day for the Pandora's box of, of health and stick-to-itiveness that helps them in some way. Well, I mean, you talk about podiums, right? And, and, and podiums and you've got winners and, and, but the thing is also you, you are coming down last generally. Yeah, and and yeah. sometimes like in, in the Downeyville that you did for the movie, you beat eight people. So you yeah. passed, passed some people along the way. I mean, that was in the movie there. Oh, oh, Bobby just passed someone. Well, you know, so and, and the crowd goes, the crowd goes quiet. I mean, you, that crowd is, it's a crazy crowd. It's a huge okay. celebration for everybody. Real quick, you're coming me, down. It's like, ahead. hold on, we've got to see this. We've got to see this. I yeah. mean, you're you're an anomaly in some I ways, am. but it's also it's also I think it's a I think it's a representation of, you know, like I, I wish that I could do it. I mean, a lot of people are looking at it, looking at you, going, going, wow, you know, I don't, I wouldn't do it, or I wish that I could do that. You're like, you're a reminder for a lot of people of the person that they want to be, which to me is what's important about your sponsorship. You know, why you, why you're providing that value and a greater value in a lot of ways. That's right on point. 
is that, like I said, I've been with a couple of these com companies for a long time, Santa Cruz, Cali, Lazine, Crank Brothers, Cliff, you know, Wiley. There's a, they, they've been with me for a long time. And it's that I met amazing people who happen to have great products. They are that 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 they may, some people like I'm of no value. Well, that's neat. That's a novelty, and I you know and I I like to think that with my tenure in mountain biking world, I've created my own niche, and people will see value in that because I can't say, well, give us your top three races from last year. You know, send us some content. Well, my life is content, depending on how we choose to use it. Um, How do you stack your top races up, though? I mean, give us your top three races. I'd imagine you look back and go, that was a killer race. That was my best race. Do you have that race that you say that was it? So many of them. I mean, it's the. Uh, do we give medals to kids for participating? Because a lot of people look at what I do is like, oh, that's neat. He's doing that. And I want to say, go fucking try it. You go ride Downeyville. You know, you know that, you know, you go this and, and that 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 competitiveness. But I understand where I, my abilities are and my value. My favorite events, uh, I could pick any of the Downeyville races I've done, you know, and I would always do try to do uh, both the cross country and the downhill. And while I did the external worlds and I did race across America, I'll tell you what, Downeyville, two days in a row, the cross country and then the downhill is the meanest thing I've ever done to myself combination of crashes intensity you know literally that's a place you can die like mega mega avalanche i was my sponsors got me over there i not only got to do the mega avalanche i got to ride in one of the first enduro races europe ever had and i got i fell under the wing of the one and only brian lopes who's one of the greatest athletes ever one of the greatest cycling guys ever super intense guy you know and some people have their misconception of this guy i spent you know a week with this guy and only english speaking so to speak americans at this event that that experience is that you know what people say oh gosh you participated i'm like no i'm going out there to get the best time i can i am literally racing to and, and i have limitations it's that really you think i see that well why did it take me two hours versus the winner who did it in an hour come for a ride with me it's that it's i don't need that proof i don't do these things because i lost my side or because of these things i don't i don't do it for attention it's because i really love it chris i've always loved putting a number plate on i still love going with people going to the top of the and and, and and finding some rugged downhill trail to see if I can do it without putting a foot down. I still love the challenge. That's the thing that I saw in the movie, right? Where there was the, the place that you cleaned, you went through one section on the Downeyville course, and there was this complete sense of euphoria. I've never yeah. done that before. Oh, and, and I'd imagine that is different than this is the fastest time. I mean, you're probably looking and saying, okay, I'm racing against myself to a certain extent. And if I'm 30 seconds faster, if I'm a minute faster, hey, that's a good thing. But it's also, can I do that? Because for you to clean certain sections is, is, is spectacular. I mean, is, is, is absolutely amazing. Like you, you think, 
you know, some of these things are so technical and people who are seeing are thinking their way through it. And you just have to have like, okay, here's the plan. This is it. I'm following the plan. And I hope that it works. There's a lot of hope in what you do. And sometimes that hope ends up on the side of the trail yeah, in absolutely. blood and broken ribs. <laughs> well, that old adage, you know, uh, what you don't know doesn't hurt you. Well, and sometimes in my situation, what you can't see doesn't hurt you. And in that particular spot, you know, I've had a lot of those spots of like, I, I'm, I'm going to walk this, I'm going to walk this, and I'll keep walking it. And then the moment is right. And it, and it comes with understanding bike, tire pressure, approach, speed, and consequences. You know, I could go back to that spot today and would probably have to walk it a couple times to feel comfortable. Because that one spot in the movie that's early on that shows the highlight, it's a it's a about a sixty foot get off to nothing but rock and water. Um, and there was a in the filming in that same spot, I was approaching it and I literally fell off. My bike stayed on and I'm clinging to the side. They're screaming. Jason and Wendy are screaming at me, and I'm like, I got my bike. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. You know. And they're wanting to rush and help, and I'm like, slow it down. Don't, don't push anything off. I mean, literally, I fell off and cling to the side and got back up. This is Wiley Coyote. Pretty much. But there is, I, I love that, you know, hitting a, hitting a jump where I get the backside of a table, you know, a little bit of credit card air. You know, guys are boosting big air. You know, you're seeing Kohut and what he does. You know, that's, that is so cool. But, man, a little bit of air like that, that, that sense of that, I hope everybody has that in their successes. For me, it is that move. But oftentimes, I am often have to be smart enough to say not today. And, and it depends on the guide, right? Because oh. you had the issue with JJ there and you're talking to Wendy about guiding and you might not have seen this. And this might be a detail that you missed in the visual acuity side of things. But you were talking to Wendy and she had a lip quiver. Oh, I didn't know that when she was talking to you about guiding where she said, Bobby, I, I really, I, I really, I, I really, I, I don't feel comfortable doing this. I don't feel you like. Certainly hear it. Oh yeah. No, it was, it was, I mean, there was a, there was a distinct lip quiver as, as she's watching because she's, she's in charge for you. She's going to have to help you. And, and that is, it's a teamwork thing. This is. She was a good guide too, though. She was good, man. We ripped. Oh, I'm sure, I'm sure she was, but, but it's also, she has to be prepared and prepared mentally in order to help you or else, or else she's not going to be any good to you. If she, she can't be, she can't indulge in her fear and still be useful to you. She has to be able to make proactive decisions the whole way down, which is a really challenging thing. It goes back to what you were saying earlier about, you know, what the emotional investment people make when they guide me. It is, it is definitely, people get done and they'll, the, the two things in a successful ride, no matter if it's a shorter run or a day of cross country, they'll go, oh my God, I am just burnt out. Yes. And they'll also add, that was the coolest thing I've ever done on a bike. Right. Very, very double-edged sword because I do realize, you know what, in the, length of an hour and a half cross country race, chances are somebody's gonna say a left when it needs to be a right. You know, these mistakes happen or they, they don't 
you know, it's more information to be able to talk, have a conversations of love, 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 right, 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 right. Oh, how's the weather? How's mom and dad? Right, right, right. Pull up, pull up. That for a downhill is intense and tough because of the speeds and maybe the obstacles, but just, you know, a ski race, two and a half minutes, a ski run, a couple minutes long, or on a bike, on a ride, you know, on a road ride, I can sit in, follow a shape, stay left, stay right, you know, sit in, pull through, pretty basic. And so the communication, unless you're going downhill really fast, is not limited, but not as intense. You look at a downhill ride of any kind, you know, the, you know, I fall off going uphill more than I go downhill because you kind of sit in, you're bumping around and, you know, I'm not doing any speed. I'm super slow climbing and I'll wander off because I'm not paying attention. I won't follow them. And oftentimes we'll just be having a conversation and I will find myself riding off the side of the trail or, you know, hitting a little rut that knocks me over. And then it's comical. But when, when, when it's, when it's time for us to, you know, strap it on and point it down the hill or get moving, it is very intense. And it is um, on, on, on the guide, but, when I find myself talking to you on a ride, when we are literally just having a downhill run and I hear the subtext of the conversation of, okay, soft left, soft left, pull up, pull up, in between conversation, that's when I'm riding my best. I'm not worried about following. I'm hearing the commands. I've done the work. So my body's doing what is, yeah, it's intuitive. And I get to enjoy riding my bike. That's when I can see. Ah, that's, that's the thing. Yeah. That's a big thing. Like I talk about that in skiing. It's where I forget that I'm sitting down. This is when you can see that. Wow. What a moment that, that it is. is. It is. It is just that it's that you get kind of a flow in a conversation as well as with flow in your body. And it becomes effortless. All that repetition, all that muscle memory that you've had instilled at whatever level you've, you've done it becomes second nature and the conversation becomes about us and not about guiding. I'm not worried about, I'm talking with Chris, my buddy, as we hard left, hard left, hard right, hard right. And then we're right back into talking about the new house or mom and dad or, you know, something else on our plates. And then it's pull up, pull up. The conversation, it becomes intuitive. Those commands become something we begin just flowing with just like the riding becomes a flow kind of a flow state that people use. And I love that flowing like water that I'm not, what did he say? Is he too far ahead? Is he checking his speed? I'm off. I'm off. I'm off. It becomes the gap is consistent. You've mastered the where I need to be and where you need to be. That if I say I'm off, I'm off. You sit up and you don't break without the discussion, you know, without a focus on right, 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 left, 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 pull up, pull up. It's, just a simple low-key conversation not yelling man that's when you that's that's when that's when i come down and for, i forget that i i don't see very well that's I, a payoff too right you put oh it is absolutely all the work in all the crashes and you go oh this is perfection you talked about golf like that's that's that one shot right that one shot that you go oh i've totally figured it out that's why now we play the game the next time why we play <laughs> The one shot. It, it gets it gets you going. Wow, that's awesome. You talked about 
before that you have to continue to keep your to 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 scare yourself <laughs> that, that there's a part what in the past what was when you scared yourself the most when when were you most scared from sport or life life in general yeah i mean what, whatever um, where, where you go wherever you want to go on this one i i have a six-year-old daughter who is my world and i would never people could you know i've got sisters i'm an uncle but until i had my daughter i had no idea what life feels like i love the life that i've had athletically absolutely unimaginable and i'm so thankful for every opportunity and as we get older and slower and you know um, a little bit more cagey i have an appreciation for it understanding that i will never be back 10 years ago but i can still get scare the crap out of me today with my daughter, I, I've been sick a lot, as you know, and you know, and during this COVID, it's very concerning for me. Not, you know, I do still feel invincible. I feel like maybe I actually had it back in January and breezed through it, but that's my own belief system of I'm invincible. And you're, I, you're with a lot of other people who've, who've thought that they've had it. But I, I take precautions to protect others, as well as I hope they take precautions to protect others. But with my daughter, there was a point where I had pneumonia. I've had a number of cases of pneumonia. I probably had severe pneumonia probably 10 plus times. Hospitalizations, shitty ones like, you know, you know respirators. And, uh, but I always, I, that's, that's a part of me too, is like, whether I snapped it off and have a broken femur, I, I ask when, when can I get back on my bike? I'm looking forward to getting back to my way of life. And that dialogue, internal dialogues changed to if I've been sick or have something done, it's changed my thought process to when can I get to see my daughter and, and my wife, of course. But there was a, there was a time where um, I was, I'm pretty stubborn and I can function at a really high level with pneumonia. Um, I'm not too proud. If I want to get to the top of a hill on a given day, I'll put a fucking foot down and walk up it to get some bird in. And I was really having a tough time breathing. I was going to go to an enduro. And, you know, I muscled through low-level low cases of enduro, get some antibiotics and charge on. Um, my tolerance level was really good. This was a little different. I was having tougher and tougher times breathing. I was up and reading. I was going to go to the Ashland enduro, dropped off some product for Cali as some prizes. And I remember sitting there wheezing like I had a wet blanket over my face and went, I can't do this. I need to go home. And my sister and her son had driven me and I, you know, called my buddy Andy saying, there's, I can't do the Enduro. I'm, I'm, I, I need to get home and just heal up. I got as far as my sister's house uh, in Anderson where I stopped and saw her and she goes, dude, you look fucking terrible. You, you, you need to go to a hospital. And I'm literally like bent over trying to breathe, but I'm going to go home. And I got in the van and I said, take me to the hospital. Let's go to Mercy. So I was in Reading and diagnosed with lungs full of fluid with a pretty good case of pneumonia and going through a bunch of tests. And they started talking about, you know, my, my heart has been a regular, you know, obviously the pacemaker and some surgeries have kind of upgraded shit. But, you know, there was some regular arrhythmias 
and they started talking about heart stuff and and i'm like no it's pneumonia that's what's causing it you know you know um and so i i was having i wasn't comfortable because i wasn't under my my plural doctor's cares if i'm at cpmc in san francisco these guys know me they know my capabilities and my strengths as a patient which we all have i i understand i I understand what's, I understand my health. I understand what it takes, but I also understand what, what's, what's going on with my body in, in, in 99.9% of cases. And I knew that, yeah, I do have a abnormal heart rhythm, but it's probably being induced by the severe case of pneumonia because I'm, you know, I need to get this. Anyways, they, they plugged me in and um, my O2 levels were really low. And I did start thinking like, I am not going to fucking die here. If I'm going to die of pneumonia, I'm going to San Francisco. And I started making some calls and I was telling them because I started having an, uh, an uptake. I started feeling better. I was getting out of bed, still breathing, still some fluid. This is about four or five days. And they were like, we're not letting you go, not in your shape. And I'm like, you guys understand, I'm going home to see my kid. Because the way you're talking, if I'm on my way out, I'm not dying here and I'm not dying without seeing my, my, my wife and my kid. And I was fucking scared. And well, how did I respond? I responded with intensity. It's like, you cannot, I mean, I was literally, I've never done this and I was finding myself because I just wanted to go home. If I'm gonna die with pneumonia, fuck, I'll die at home or I'll die at SF so at least they can see me, but I'm going. And you can help me do that or one, I'm going to call, and I mean, you you have the right as a patient, you have certain level of rights, and um, you know, I was I was like, you can't keep me, I can discharge myself, that's a fact, and it, I was cognizant, I was aware, I was cerebrally intact, and I said, tell you what, you can hook me up with some oxygen if I need it, or I'll unplug myself and call a cab. And so all of a sudden, the doctor has to show up, and then someone's calling, and then they're bringing in some counselor. And I'm like, you know what? You better get me a hospital lab bed because you guys are all out of line. And now you're preventing me from leaving, and I'm going to leave. And I was doing this based on that fear. That scared the shit out of me that I, could, I was going to go leave this world. Not that I was afraid for myself. I'm comfortable with the idea with my life. And so many times being near that point of, getting a dirt nap that, you know, I don't have no regrets about my life and who I am with my daughter, man, I, I want, I, it's changed. And that was my first realization of how, what that really meant to me is that it wasn't about, I'm going to bounce back from this and get back riding, Chris, I'm going to bounce back and get to that, you know, being Bobby again. It was, I want to see my kid. Cause if it's as bad as you say that to me, that, is a whole different level of angst and uh, fear. I don't consider myself, I don't fear life, never have. A life shut down because you're afraid of things is a life lost. Does that change some of the risks that you're willing to take? The, the, the now that you are a husband and you are a father? You know, I've been, there are people that will call me out in a lot of different ways. And I, you know, on stage people, wasn't. Well, do you, don't you, do you understand what you're risking? I've had two double organ transplants. There's not really much better gift. I've won the lottery twice. I'm on my second pacemaker. 
do I have an appreciation of second, third, fourth, fifth, nine lives plus as my mom? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yes. You're hoarding them right now. Yeah. Yes. But when I'm in my element, I have an incredible level of confidence. That what we didn't talk about is that confidence in yourself and trust in yourself and trust in those around you. Two things that people don't talk about or have anymore. People don't trust themselves. They don't believe in themselves. I have an unequivocal trust in my abilities and my ability to evaluate risk. So you're taking good risk is what you're saying that you're- Yeah, always have, always have. And that if I stop doing these things at that level, whatever level I might be doing it now as a 58 year old semi, you know, an ambassador guy who likes to ride all the time that's blind and has pacemakers. I mean, I, most people don't know that and people will go, hey, you're, you're, you're really good. You ride your bike really well. You, know, you may not go uphill very well, but I ride my bike fairly well. I do have an unequivocal trust in the people I surround myself with and myself, whether that's in life and life experiences or what I choose to do. But I also trust in myself to be able to pull back the throttle a little bit, not take that risk, maybe not ride that line or maybe put a foot down. Does it have to do with being a dad? I don't think so because I've always had it. But it hasn't changed. Ask me after I fucking snap it off. You know, I don't think of that as an inhibitor for me. What I think of as if I changed who I am, if I greatest compliment I get, 58 years old, is Bobby, you haven't changed a bit since I knew you when you were in high school. Wow. And, and is that the is that the case? There's not a sense of carpe diem of the of your clock ticking a little bit faster than other people's clock and things you need to do and want to do and you know is there is there anything that you're that you're looking at right? I mean you're alive right now and Ella is what five six yeah yeah and six. and six and and you know I'd imagine there's there's the the juxtaposition of 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 living life, of making sure that you're healthy and wanting to be there for her and wanting to be there for those moments, right? That you're looking at high school graduation, college graduation, the wedding, you know, the, the, these kinds of things, right? And, and how does that inform the decisions that you make on a daily basis? It, these are things I do think about, you know, but I, I, I guess I, the, the context that I evaluate my life with is that, man, um, I don't care what anybody believes about COVID. That shit's real. It's killing people. <laughs> and it's making people sick. Right. And, you know, God bless you for whatever religious, you know, connotation you want to make about that. But if you, if you don't or you don't think it's that bad, but it is. And I know that based on experiences with my doctors. and. You know, I'll be that person. You you should not say, well, you just stay home, not me. I'm like, all of us should go out. Just put a fucking mask on for 30 minutes of the day. If you go into a market or you're going to, it's not that hard. But for me, it's like, I'm, I'm an extreme social distancer right now because it's that that I'm very aware that could change. But yes, my health every day. You know, make sure I see my doctors, make sure I maintain my my uh, medical regime, my pharmaceuticals are in line, you know, the meds I take, um, make sure I'm staying healthy. But part of my mental health is to continue to live the life I have at 58. And that is changing, that dynamic's changing. It is frightening to think that going downhill, I am faster than 
and writing better than than I ever have. It That's is awesome. It is, and the confidence that I have. Now, like I said, ask me after I'm, you know, and I splatted a couple times in the last couple of weeks, but it was, you know, it was it was stuff not my fault. You know, transitioning from a down a fun dirt ride to another fun dirt ride, and we had to be on the road, and there's some cars behind us, and I wanted to get over to the side a little bit on my and my guides, you know, in front of me. And anyways, I got hooked up, and they had raised the road through a new, you know, surfacing. Slapped, they slapped right in traffic, and I'm like, "What? Don't run over me!" But bounce up, I'm bloody and bruised, but yeah, I'm fine. I mean, that was point being is that I am very aware. I want to be here forever, dude. I will fight. You know, if I end up on a machine, don't let anybody kick the plug. Cause I'll come back. Interesting. I will come back. Is that the story that you're telling Ella? I mean, Ella's your daughter, right? And you've got to pass yeah. on all of this experience and, <laughs> and, uh, and wisdom to her, right? Is that the story that you're telling her? Well, that is a great question. Um, I'm trying to share with her who I am in a sense that when she grows up, she's in for a lot of surprises when she may find out the different things that I did under the circumstances, just like anybody's kids will. Um, I want to be a dad. I want every day to be an experience about her. My job is to be here to give her the guidance of the father as long as any father wishes to be thick and thin. I am older. We had her when I was 52. That in itself, culturally and socially, puts on maybe, you know, people make people think about it, you know. But who I am goes to, this goes to exactly conversations we've been having. Who I am is not what I do or being blind Bobby or the blind mountain biker or, you know, Bobby McMullen who did these amazing, had these amazing adventures. I had amazing adventures. I'm a guy that I'm Bobby McMullen who happens to be blind and had some other stuff going on in his life. I am Bobby McMullen who's been lucky enough to have these adventures. I want her to know her dad. That those things, neither does my health. I don't identify with all the health issues and bumps and bruises and up and downs. I identify with being your, your friend, Chris. Most of all, I identify with being a father and a good husband. And none of those things, they're the sum of the parts, but they are not the key parts of me. The key parts of me in my heart and my investment in people, I hope that they sense that. My friends, that I'm a good guy. And when they observe later on, that if my daughter looks over me when, they, when you kick dirt over me, Later, hopefully later than sooner. <laughs> later, let's 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 postpone yeah. that as long yeah, as we let's can. Let's push, and I will. That's that's the, that's the key, right? But that you and her can look at each other and say, "My dad was a good man," and that's a product of your experiences. But it's also a absolutely product. it's a product of who I am. I mean, this is yeah. you're passing on what your parents taught you too. Mm-hmm. And I want her. I don't care who she loves or how she loves. I don't care if she plays any sports or skis or chooses art or chooses just to be a, I I want her to be happy, love herself, respect herself and be a productive member of our community and our life and our world. 
and all the other bells and whistles that we stumble across, good and bad moments in our life, she will discover those. She'll discover who she wants to be. And I don't ever want to put her in the position to have to live up to some level of stupid ass toughness that people often, oh boy, you got to be a really tough guy. No, I'm not. There are tougher people. There are people that have faced extreme changes in their life. We know them, many of them, some of them. Right, sure. We've, we've worked around them. I want her to know that how to love and be loved. And this is a byproduct of who I am. And yes, part of those, the sum of those parts, parts of the sum are who I am when I go out and ride a bike, the joy I have when I'm riding a bike with her, to the giddiness I still get about getting to the top of a hill and going, <laughs> full face goggles, let's do this. To look at the clock and go, huh, that's quite a bit faster than the last time I did it. You know, I mean, that is who I am. And if I change that, that's not who I am. If I slow down because I get married, if Heidi didn't accept me for everything I am, thick, thin, sick, and hurt, if I had to change that, I wouldn't be the person she married. I wouldn't be your friend. Is that part of the story that you tell yourself when you're going through difficult times, when you're going through pain? And, and you're saying you're not tough. I remember you telling me, and maybe, maybe I'm wrong in this, when you were going through dialysis, that dialysis was like them hammering a 16 penny nail into your vein for three hours. I mean, there's, there's some pain and we've all, we've all encountered pain and we will all continue to counter, encounter pain. But part of, how we, part of how we make our way through that pain and thrive in that pain is, is the story that we tell to ourselves. The reason why we're doing this, the reason why we're encountering it, it is that, is that how it works for you? And is that something that you can, that you can pass on? to your daughter? I, yeah, I mean, it's, it, I, it sounds funny. It's all really relative. I mean, what, what we're capable of of people, uh, you know, I think people's lack of faith in themselves to survive certain things or tolerate certain things, you know, um, why we're, why we're losing that or the faith in other people. Um, but that level of, of toughness, I don't, I never set out to be any of this blind Bobby. I, that wasn't part of my plan. Like I said, bad lawyer, paying alimony ready. Um, and I, I, you know, there's, there's a, the, the tough question is, it's like, do you get used to it? It's not a matter of time before I get sick again or get hurt or something at the transplant or my heart goes south. It's, you know, it can be a matter of time. Um, and it just depends on what degree and the level of percent of survivability. And I consider my opportunity to stay alive pretty good. Um, but the discomfort, the comebacks, you know, it's, it's that, you know, I'm looking at COVID right now and all these restrictions and not being able to do all these things, you know, and I'm, I'm looking at like, I've had more times than I can remember of taking a year to heal up from a cutoff toe trying to get that healed up to go into, you know, the summer camp the next summer, you know, a broken arm. And I mean, that World Cup at Breckenridge, my fucking wrist was broken, dude. 
I was duct taping a pole to my hand because I'd come back from my transplant. I was three weeks before I was riding a mountain bike on the whiskey town, made a bad turn, got off, fractured the navicular, put a cast on it. And we had camp and then we had the world cup and I duct taped my hand to a pole. What we become used to in life, right? Hold on. So that was 98. So in 98, yeah. you first, so you had, you had pulverized your toe and you'd broken your wrist. That was prior to all that. This was like the, this was going into Nagano. This was the Breckenridge, remember the very first Breckenridge World Cup? Oh, oh so this was, not, this was like December. Okay, so yeah. this is the December camp. That's what I mean. That you I broke your wrist going like. into the December camp. Yeah. So your wrist hopefully had healed by the time you broke your toe. Oh, by the time yeah, you yeah, yeah. I was, your toe, stubbing it, trying to get ice oh, yeah. for your hurt knee in the hotel. Yeah, I was golden. I mean, literally, it was like the two days, day before I was getting on a plane to, to go to Breckenridge to, to prep for the World Cup. I mean, it was, it was like late December. It's great riding out and riding California then. And what, it's fitness. That's what I followed my guide. I was training. I mean, that shit happened. But yeah, that was in 98, 90. Yeah. Yeah. This is December of, of 97 and then going into the 98 ski season. And what I'm getting from this is, is part of my question too, is that you, you forget the pain. I mean, you, you've encountered some, some pain and pain is that thing that puts you in the moment, right? I mean, how often in our lives are we saying, you know, I want to be in the moment and pain is that moment that you think I want to, I want to think of something else. Can I distract myself? And you keep coming back to the pain and you keep coming back to the pain. And I know both of us have experienced some pretty profound pain, but you forget the pain, don't you? Do you forget how profound that oh, pain was? Ooh, yeah. And, and, it, and it becomes, a, I've always looked at discomfort and pain as a gauge of healing. You know, um, you know, it reminds you of consequences and it reminds you of a lot of things, but more to me, it's like, it's that gauge. Are you in pain because of discomfort? Are you in, or are you in pain because of an injury? If you're injured and you're getting pain, are you worsening that injury? Right. Right. So there's different kinds. And I've always graded that area. I can have some broken ribs and still ride a bike. The biggest risk being you don't want to fall again and really jack them up. Or puncture a lung or you know, something that like that. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. That, there's that, that, that level of consequence versus, you know, yeah, a you know, they pin up a broken bone, you know, so you're not going to hurt it if they pinned it or plated it, you know, it's not going to shift or anything. So, you know, that pain you get from stepping on it, you're not going to damage it through rehab, but the longer, you, the quicker you can get up on a broken femur, you know, that's, that's plated up or pinned up, you know, that tolerance of like, okay, it's pain's not as bad, not as bad, but also, you know, you're, you're agitating an area of injury that, part of healing is agitating. And so mine, I, I, I'm very guilty of graying that, doing things like with a broken toe and skiing. Was that the smartest thing? Most people would have said, no, going home, not racing, not gonna put my broken shattered toe into a ski boot. I went all Ronnie Lott and said, what's the worst could happen? 
Well, Bobby, it could get super infected. You get osteomyelitis and they could cut your goddamn foot off. Oh, that's a risk. Let's not do that. Yeah. Yeah. And well, still, consequence, investment of what I had done. I was skiing well. How the next time I'm going to get to a Paralympic Games was unknown. I'd just come back from a transplant. It I risked it. I skied great. I just crashed every race. That happens in careers. That happens. It's not because I wasn't prepared. I didn't crash because of my transplant, having a transplant. I did not crash because my toe hurt. I crashed because it's winter to wear it. Clay would say that all the time. <laughs> winter to wear it. You know, and uh, and that's that stuck with me and that resonated with me. And so dealing with that level of pain, does that become a is there a weird level of comfort? You know, I'm not a sadomasochist, man. I don't like to hurt. No, no, I'm, I'm saying, I'm saying I, I actually that you, that you forget that you go through that pain. You know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like women who have, who have babies, right. And they have a baby and, and that has got to be some pretty darn even imagine it. amazing pain, but they forget enough that they actually have another one. You know, and, and I think that there that we as human beings have that ability that sometimes sometimes the fear that we project into the future is is that much more debilitating than any pain any pain that we've had in the past that we go, okay, well that was that was pain and and yeah, it hurt. And and did it hurt a lot? Yeah, it probably hurt a lot. I don't remember exactly how much it hurt, but I knew when it when I was in it, it hurt a lot. And and we have that ability to kind of to kind of move move past it the reference point of having a child but also it does go to that cost benefit evaluate the experience and the horrendous pain that i'm sure every woman does remember that whoa but the child that they have you know and to me it wasn't a child it was like all right i i bled through my eyes every day from the time i had my first transplant to get back to the team they didn't save a spot for me, Chris. No, I bet when not. I showed up, I, no, when I showed up in Hood, I had been there two weeks skiing, and then there was a team camp. It was a whole big bag of, what are you doing here? <laughs> and a number of athletes said, yeah, we kind of thought you were done. <laughs> but I worked hard to get to that point. I worked hard at the opportunity to be there, and I was not going to let discomfort or a toe banged up or well, maybe you should rest another year, you know, with your transplant. No, I was ready. But like I said, it, it, with the relationship of a baby and having another, a reminder of, it's like, I don't intentionally do this to myself, but my life has, and my life choices, and I fully accept every ache and pain I have to the day I die. I expect that, I, 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 I accept every consequence and bad decision and bad consequence I've had moving through my life and the things I've done. And, you know, it, it could be a lot worse. You know, I've done this having fun and, you know, there's a lot of people that never had a choice. And my choice is, all right, I did that screwing around or made a bad turn. People always say, well, God, going through that again. Oh my gosh, you got another comeback. I think overall about the reference of pain and the level of it. You know, having a heartache was a lot worse on me. You know, the idea, you know, losing when those kids passed. Yeah. 
that that's uh, that's pain i don't know that i could survive the pain of a divorce i don't know that i could even consider the loss of a child i don't know that i have that in me so this other aspect of my life of injury sickness kidneys transplants man there's a whole lot of parts of this that just suck man it is just not that fun some of these you know cancer that's where your stomach drops and goes wait a minute so if you can't cut it out and the radiation doesn't work you're going to radiate me and it's going to be my throat and you know i could lose you know i mean they already cut lymph nodes out i mean you start evaluating like but i it, and i don't want to sound cavalier i've always had that cut it out let's get back to living right and maybe the same applies to my threshold of risk in in my daily life my lifestyle and it applies uh you know to how i take certain precautions but other than the other, other like riding a bike with two transplants who what am i risking if i did not live this way they should have give they should have given the transplant to someone else if they would have said Bobby, you know, you need to restrict and you need to do this, man. I would have tried, I said in the movie and I still believe, and I, this is me. It's that I've had some tough times, man. But you know, maybe there's there, visually impaired people don't do what I, I don't recommend it. Some are built for it, some are not. My level of toughness is different than others. But you're honoring that transplant too, right? I am living. And I will say this again, that I haven't had the opportunity to meet the family, but if they did in either transplant, but if they did, my hope is they would say that he has lived a good life because I still say it. I'm trying to be the best man I can be, the best person I can be. I realize that gift every day. I realize the gift of medical technology, the gift of friends. It is not a token thing when I say I am so thankful. There's nothing tragic about my life. And if I've got to tolerate some aches and pains and bumps and bruises, man, I know what it's like to puke every single day and have two 16 penny nails in your arm. I know what that's like. And this isn't a testimony of anything other than my appreciation that I somehow dumb fucking luck to be able to tolerate meds that allow me to do some of the, a lot of people take the same meds and can't do what I do. Right. And you're taking they, a lot of 15 pills uh, a day or something, yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, it's like 12 in the morning and 14 or 13 at night. But there's the, the side effects of those things are grave. And, and do I appreciate that? Oh, yeah. Is it a cavalier thing the way I choose to live my life? No, I choose to live my life. No, you're, it's purposeful. It's what you're doing is a purposeful life, a purposeful, full life. And I think that's what everybody loves. And I got to say it, I am not a survivor. Do not confuse me for someone who survived. I'm a living, I'm a, I live, I choose to live. And I do, I am not, I, I've learned my history is something for me to remind myself of and to understand and be better at taking care of myself now or to be better at what I do in my daily life, to be a better father. But, you know, my other experiences, you know, I don't live there. I don't live. You're not going to see me marching down Main Street in a cancer march. 
because I will not live there. I will live with you and I will live in the future and I will live to give 110% to be the best I can be. But it is not up to anybody's standard but mine because when I look at my daughter is that if she grows up knowing that I live my life with character and integrity, that it's not being a tough guy. It's being resilient. It's being able to understand what goes on in your life and that pushing through hardship. No matter how I umbrella dad her right now, because right now, if I can catch her from falling down once, I'm saving her from one skin knee because life is going to have a thousand fucking skinned knees. And that if I can help her to understand that's that you're, you're going to be okay and to shake it off and to, to, to give her that appreciation, what, you know, I, I, people can't walk in my shoes and say, I understand what it's like. I fucking hate that. Oh, I understand. My uncle is blind or blah, 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 or I've had this experience. No, Chris, I can't understand your experience. I can't understand Ella's or Heidi's or other friends. I will never say I understand. I will say, I appreciate that. Let's talk about it and share some experiences because you have shared with me a lot and made me a better person from the day I met you. And every time we talk, I glean something off of you. And I'm selfish, man. I'm a mimic. And I, I see some of my behaviors with my daughter. But going, going to it, it's that what can I teach her being able to? I don't just survive stuff. I haven't withstood anything. That life shows up every day. It opens a lot of different doors. Sometimes it's a Fred fucking Flintstone closet. You open it up and shit falls all over you. Get up, shake it off, sort through the mess, open up the next door, and you're getting on a mountain bike and riding with your daughter. With Ella, if she takes away that my dad taught me, helped me learn what it's like to be loved and how to love, that she grows up with character, integrity, and honesty, and to be a contributing member of life in her own way, whatever she chooses, then my job is, is complete. And I want to be here long enough to give her that. All the radness you guys can tell, you know, people can tell her later. <laughs> oh, Bobby, I don't know if we can move forward from that. I think that's like the best possible place that we can end this talk. I think that it really, it really is. I mean, because I look at you and I say, you're somebody, it's so easy to put your laundry list of stuff that you've faced and go, oh, he's done this, he's done that. But the idea that in the face of all of that, you have to live your life fully. You have to live your life with integrity. You have to live your life with commitment every single day. And, and I think that, I think the beauty of what you do in mountain biking is that people get a chance to see that. They might not know the whole story. They might not know how much you see. They might not know all the times that you had to fall down in order to get there. But I think there's a great reminder for all of us. And I mean, you push me and, and I, I look at it and go, okay, all right, that's, I, I see what you're doing. And I see what you bring to the game every day. That's in, in a lot of ways, that's all, that's all we can really hope for. Are we going to win? No, 
but can we bring the preparation? Can we bring the commitment? And I thank you for being a great friend. I thank you for being a great role model for so many, for so many of us. And I mostly just thank you for having fun, for getting out there and having fun and doing what you want to do and figuring out how to actually do that. Thank you for joining us on Living It, Bobby. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Chris. And thank you to the audience for everybody that listens. And we should have fun. Smile so much we get sunburned tea. That's exactly it. <laughs> thank you, Chris. Thank you, Bobby. <laughs>